Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planning and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us for our Advent series. Advent is not merely a time where we celebrate Christmas and the birth of Christ, but rather a moment where we eagerly anticipate the return of our King. This series aims to use Old Testament prophecies to remind us of the good news of not only Jesus' birth, but His reign and the moment He'll come again. To find out more about our Christmas services, head to church.nu forward slash Christmas. But for now, enjoy the message. We are reading today from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, And provide those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. You may be seated. Thank you, Lara. Awesome. How are we doing this afternoon, friends? Good through a warm and humid uh, set of pews. We're doing good. Thank you so much for being here this afternoon. I'm very excited to preach. Uh, as Lara and Rach said, we are spending our time looking at the theme of joy, continuing our Advent series. If you've not met me, uh, my name's Alex, and I have the joy of serving as pastor here at New Life Brisbane, and it's an absolute delight. Uh, what a time of year. December 17th, a few more weeks to the end of the year, and then we're into 2024. Who would have thought it, hey? Let me pray one more time, and uh, as we come to sit under the Word of God, my prayer is that um, we, we would entertain the possibility uh, that up the front and coming from the, the platform is not the thoughts of a preacher, um, not the musings of a reflective, but the very Word of God spoken by the Spirit of God into our hearts. So why don't we pray? Close your eyes and we'll contend together. Father, thank you that even though I've prepared a sermon, uh, you want to speak, and you can speak with it or in spite of it. And Lord, I pray as we entertain the possibility that you've got joy for us right now, would you help us be open to what you want to do? And would you reveal something about yourself that doesn't just lead to new information, but leads to transformation? helps us be unashamed in our delight in you. For we pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. I genuinely think that we chase joy in this life. I think we chase happiness. Uh, I think we chase after things that, in a sense, give us that spark of joy or gladness or good tidings. Um, And the reason I think this is I think it's demonstrated in our love of Disney movies. Uh, How do all Disney movies end? With a happy ending. And it's fitting, it's appropriate, it's satisfying for all movies to end with a happy ending because I think we'd all be a little bit disappointed if we discovered 
that after Aladdin and Jasmine whisked off on their magic carpet ride that they broke up after two years because of irreconcilable differences, just wouldn't have the same satisfaction. And I think this demonstrates our delight and joy, our pursuit of happiness, our sense of a job well done when we see a movie that's actually got resolution and joy at the end. And another person who agrees with me is John Lennon. John Lennon put it like this. He said, when I was five years old, my mother always told me that happiness was the key to life. When I went to school, they asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wrote down happy. They told me I didn't understand the assignment, and I told them they didn't understand life. Now, as I begin to unpack this and use words like joy and happiness to do so, someone's going to come to me and say later, hold on, I thought there was a distinction between joy and happiness, and I thought so too when I started my study at the start of the week, but the more I got into the scriptures and the more I understood the way psychologists talk about joy and happiness, the more I realized it's sort of like a Venn diagram. And there's a whole host of crossover in these words. And to be honest, you look up a definition for happiness and it uses the word joy. You look up a definition for joy and it uses the word happiness. Some preachers will go to the word in Latin happenstance and they'll make the argument that happiness is based on circumstance. Christianity offers joy, seek joy, not happiness. And Basically, I just think the jury's out on that one. It's not, it's not a helpful distinction. The distinction the Bible makes is not between happiness and joy, but in where you get your source of joy and how sustainable and good that is. And so I'm gonna use the terms interchangeably. I hope that's okay. But we're looking at joy. We're continuing in our Advent series. And the purpose of Advent is to center our imaginations around the coming of Jesus Christ. The fact that he has come and the fact that he will come, that he's done a work in the past, he'll do a work in the future, all for our good, our joy. In fact, the themes that we center our imagination around through Advent is the themes of joy, love, peace, and hope. And these are the most fitting themes, not just for the human to entertain, but as an articulation of what the centrality of the Christian story is. The centrality of the Christian story is that there is on offer in the Savior born in a manger, joy peace, hope, and love. And the way we've been looking at these themes, just to give us a few more introductory remarks for a second, is we've been going to some Old Testament prophets and we've been asking this question. What did the Jewish ancient writers of old prophesy would come? And how do we take that bow and arrow pulled back in the Old Testament and see it landed upon the figure of Christ? And one of the images I gave us as we started this series was was that prophecy in the Old Testament, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. Prophecy in the Old Testament is a bit like someone turning their face to the side and someone drawing a silhouette of their face with a jawline, just like mine, as you can see here. That was a joke. And the prophets, they're writing and they're drawing this beautiful picture with a white backdrop and a black silhouette. And you sort of get a sense that there's this figure coming. They're prophesying and they're saying he's coming. And then you get to the New Testament and you get Jesus staring us dead in the face saying, I'm God revealed in the flesh in HD. I'm the one prophesied of old. I'm he. And that's kind of how prophecy works. The scholars call it typology. But a helpful way to think about it is just to say this, that Jesus fulfills what the Old Testament prophets prophesied and he also fills up the image of what they longed for. Advent. Joy. Here's what I want us to discover this afternoon. I want us to discover this one basic fact. Now, this is a contentious fact because as I share this fact with us, there's gonna be a myriad of positions in the room. You might not have a Christian background and you think, how could this be possible? You might be a Christian right now, but walking through something that's really hard and you think to yourself, how could this be possible? Or life might be really awesome and you might feel a bit meaningless, not because you've got excess boredom or laboriousness or pain, because you've got excess pleasure 
and you think, how could this be possible? But here's what I want us to take away. You ready? If you don't find your joy in Jesus, your joy will not last. And I'm preaching today. I hope that's okay. Because I've discovered this to be true. And I hope we do as well. And there's two ways I think we can discover this as we look at the Old Testament prophet Isaiah and track through somewhat unapologetically to the New Testament and look at the face of Jesus Christ. So number one, Jesus offers a future joy that eclipses earthly suffering. And two, he offers a present joy that surpasses earthly goods. You ready? Let's go. Jesus, number one, offers an, a future joy that eclipses earthly suffering. Now, the context of Isaiah 61 is actually pretty sour. It's pretty dark. They're in suffering. Isaiah writes to the Old Testament people of God what we know as the Israelites. And the Israelites were a nation that were chosen by God to be his hands and feet in the world, to take the holiness with which he revealed himself and embody it for the nation so the surrounding tribes and nation states and people could discover what God might be like and actually come into a relationship with him. And he did this, God, in and through the Israelites by electing a person named Moses and through Moses delivering the people of Israel from the hand of slavery of Pharaoh under Egypt through the waters of the Jordan River. They wandered the wilderness for 400 years and in that time, not a time of waiting, but a time of being formed, they came out the other side as a nation, bearing God's image imperfectly, and under the rule and establishment of a monarchy, King David, found themselves in a place God promised to give them, a place flowing with milk and honey, a place in which God's presence could dwell through the temple, a place through which God's rule could be established through the kingdom. It's Shalom. It's known as Jerusalem. But God told them at the end of Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, something else, and Deuteronomy. I forget sometimes too. But at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, after the law has been given, one of the things the covenant God tells the Old Testament people is this, choose this day which way you will live. I've given you a host of commands, not by which to gain my approval, but because I've rescued you now, try and embody the kind of family that I've made you a part of. He says, choose to follow these laws to be a witness to the world and so you might be holy in of your own right. Choose life or death. And the con not the contract, but the point of the covenant is to say that actually they can choose and indeed as the Old Testament unfolds, we realize that Israel chooses disobedience. And so the prophets come on the scene towards the back end of those first 39 books that I mentioned before. And they start saying, hey, unless you fix this, unless your priests stop soliciting money off of vulnerable people in the temple, unless your kings stop oppressing and hurting the, the lower class, unless you stop doing the hands raised in worship thing on a Sunday, but actually ignore justice and mercy for the foreigner, God's going to depart and you are going to be overtaken by Babylon and you're going to be exiled out of the promised land that you think would be the guarantee of your shalom. And so in 587 BC, Babylon rolls through. How's this for a history lesson? Babylon rolls through and exiles the Jewish community. Jerusalem's destroyed and the Jewish people are deported. So the prophets say again, and this happens in the book of Isaiah, repent, turn back, come back to your source of life or you will find yourself experiencing death and being agents of death in the world that you live in but they ignore God 
And so another 40 odd years later, in around 550 BC, last little bit of history, King Cyrus rolls through. They ransack Babylon and the new power, superpower in the ancient Near East becomes Persia. And this is the context into which Isaiah writes. Under the rule of Cyrus in Persia, Jews had the right to return to Jerusalem. So here's what you've got, summing it all up. You've got a disillusioned remnant people returning to Jerusalem. They see a devastated city. They see a destroyed temple. They become disillusioned themselves because this is a generation of people who are one, captive to an oppressive nation, Persia, and they're captive to their sinful ancestors. It wasn't their sin that brought them there. This is the result of the disobedience of their parents. And they now have to experience the hardship of a brutal nation and the captivity of the ancestors to which they owe their inheritance. Here's their two questions. One, where the heck is God? And two, why am I here? So as I write this, to you who wonder where God is, to you who are bearing the consequences of your parents' sin, to you who are a victim of an evil out there, an oppression up and outside and external to you, here's what's coming. A king that's gonna bring good news. He sent me, the writer would say, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Let me zoom in on those two words and apply this just for us in modern day Brisbane City. I think those two words are kind of exclusive, the day of vengeance and the year of the Lord's favor. Let's take the second one first. The year of the Lord's favor actually borrows language from Leviticus 25. And in Leviticus 25, the writer's talking about the year of Jubilee. Now, you could call it a Pentecostal dance party. Maybe that'll happen this afternoon. But to understand the year of Jubilee, you have to understand the Sabbath principle that God wove into creation. So we all understand what the Sabbath might be. The Sabbath is one out of seven days, God's people are to rest. Rest from work, rest from toil, rest. Beautiful institution. But then God said in the Old Testament law, another instruction I wanna give you is a Sabbath year. So a Sabbath of Sabbaths, you might say that one in every seven, not days, but years, all debts should be forgiven, all slaves go free, and the land should be prohibited from working upon. So you've got rest, one out of seven days, Sabbath. You've got rest, Sabbath year, Sabbath, Sabbath, one out of seven years. So what's the Jubilee? The Jubilee is seven sevens. On the 49th year, every 49 years, God declares Jubilee. Now, what's Jubilee? Jubilee is not when only just debts are forgiven, but if you lost your land, now this is really important, if you lost your land, you still with me? We got this, right? It's hot, but we're doing this. If you lost your land, just zoom in on this. If you lost your land, then on the 49th year, all land was to be given back to its original owners. You've got a people whose land's been taken from them and destroyed. 
and the land. We don't get this as Western white people. The land signifies all that's right and good. Indigenous cultures, just for example, I had a conversation this week with a, with a lovely lady in our community, and, and she helped me understand that indigenous cultures, they, they don't live on the land, they live with the land. The land doesn't belong to them, they belong to the land. And something of, something of this is coming up, in a sense, in the narrative of the, the Israelite people. In a different way, sure, but in a sense, it's coming up here. And so being restored to the land is so integral for the sense of well-being and shalom and peace. And here's what the prophet is saying. He's saying, there's coming a day where the land you feel was robbed from you, which symbolizes so much of your shalom and peace, the good of the world. It's gonna be given back, jubilee. That's the invitation. I'm gonna skip day of vengeance because I, I, it's, it's less important in my mind, but the image that comes to my mind when I think about what the prophet's talking about here is, is something akin to my desire for owning a combi van when I was growing up. And you're like, how did he get there? So when I was like 17, I was looking forward to buying my first car. And I remember turning to mum and dad and going, I need a combi van, split window, beautiful restoration project. And wisely, my parents said, don't be a fool. You can't afford that. And so I demoted my desire to a Volkswagen Golf, which quickly became a Twitter Corolla 2002. Thank you very much. And what I discovered in researching how I might restore a Volkswagen Combi was that it'd be very expensive and you need to do two things to ensure you can restore it properly. You've got, got to get rid of all the rust, all the decay, all the decrepancy, and you need to paint it, make it beautiful, work on it, trim the leather seats, make it lovely. Now, if you didn't do the former, the latter would be pointless. And if you just did the former, then the latter wouldn't be, you wouldn't do the latter, and so you wouldn't have a restored combi. And the same invitation's being offered here in the prophet Isaiah. There's coming a day where there's gonna be good news for the poor, release of the captives, the blind will be made to see, the day of the Lord, jubilee and vengeance. In other words, judgment and jubilee all together. And friends, that's the invitation of the Christian story. That's the joy that's coming that's the holistic thing that's on offer. Now you're like, so why is this good news? Well, it's good news because here's the bottom line of what the prophet is saying. A king is coming to do something that will destroy the evil by which you're oppressed. That's what they're hearing in ancient Israelite culture. A king is coming to deal with the problem that led to your exile, and a king is coming to deliver you into a world where none of that's possible again. Do you see that? A king is coming to do away with all these things. That's the future joy. It's a, a world where injustice and slavery and war and poverty and famine and decay and sickness and sin and death, all of it are done away with. And it's good news because here's what I've discovered about joy. Let me just apply this into our lives. I've discovered that earthly joys can feel a bit superficial sometimes. You know what I mean? They can feel just a bit on the surface level of life. Um, an example that I stumbled across this week, and as I was just reflecting and thinking through what might illustrate this, uh, a few years ago, uh, a famous lady by the name of Mary Kondo released a series on Netflix. Do you remember what it was called? I can't remember what it was called, but Mary Kondo, just so you know, uh, she's a Japanese organizing consultant. And uh, her bread and butter is to go into people's homes and help them take the chaos of life and bring order to it. And her famous criteria for sorting out whether you should keep an item, i.e. hoard an item, or discard an item, take it to Vinnie's, was hold it in your hands, and if it sparks joy, keep it. It's very nice. 
she released a book. And I'm throwing no shade. I actually think, you know, some of us could use some helpful criteria for thinking through what objects we keep in our homes. But the title of her book said it like this, Spark Joy, the illustrated guide to the life-changing magic of tidying up. It's nice. It could be a little bit superficial, though. But it's an earthly joy, and I think it's reasonable. I think it's okay. My other experience of earthly joys is that they can feel a bit trite. Uh, Tony Robbins, he's a leadership guru, he's an inspirational, motivational speaker. And on his website, he talks about the ability that humans have just to choose joy. Classic motivational speecher. speecher. I'm going to go with it. Tony Robbins, he says it like this. He says, here's how you choose joy. One, be present in the moment. Two, stop making excuses. Three, appreciate the small things. Now, zero shade. This is awesome, actually. Imagine your life if you did those three things. That'd be really helpful. Like, some examples of, of this might include. Just, just a couple of examples that come to my mind. You're out for dinner. And the bill's paid. I've used this example before. But the conversation's so good, so time slows down, and you just think, i got nowhere to be. This is awesome. Joy. That's joy right there. It's fleeting, but there it is. Or... You've been dropping hints to your better half about what you want for Christmas. And you're like, did they take the hint? Did they take the hint? And you go to the Christmas tree, it's Christmas morning, you unwrap present, and you're like, oh my gosh, my Nike Airs, which I don't own, by the way. Hint, hint. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Joy. They listened. They heard. They thought. How good. Or you're a parent, and you've been an empty nester for a while, and you've just been longing to see your, your kids flourish and succeed. And they're good things. So you might have this good, holy parent kind of pride in response to what they do in life. And they finally apply for the job. They hand in their resume. They go through the interview. And then they come to you with a text message on WhatsApp, which every family has these days. And they say, hey, I got the job. And as a parent, joy. But here's my question. What unites all of these experiences of joy, as good as they are, and the answer is, what unites them is that earthly suffering can take them away, just like that. So at best, earthly joys are when something good happens in the context of a broken world. And here's the good news of Isaiah. If earthly joys are when something good happens in a broken world, Isaiah is prophesying a day when only good happens. I'll say it again. If earthly joys is when something good happens in the midst of a broken world, Isaiah is prophesying a day to God's people when only good happens. This is really good news. This is incredible news. This is what you might call the hope of the Christian story. And you're going to sort of come at me later and say, Alex, you preached a similar shaped message the other week. And I'd say, you studied too much, well done for picking up on it. But there's no other news, there's no other story than this. That there is coming a day when God makes everything new again. Where he makes things, all the sorrows, all the mourning, all the ashes just turn to nothing. Why? Because that's his mission in the world. He's not just trying to save souls and whisk them out of this place. He's trying to bring renewal. Body, soul, mind, flesh, spirit. That's what he wants to do. And it's good news because it pulls you through some of the crap in life. 
If you've read the story of the Lord of the Rings, you'll have gotten to the end book in the Return of the King, and you'll know the story of the ring of power being cast into the fiery pits of Mount Doom. And the ring represents all that's evil in the world, all that might be powerful in the world, but the ring itself is caught up in too much temptation, and it risks the breaking of the fellowship, which Frodo's ticked off about. It becomes the tool that evil people use to wield their own will. And so the purpose of the fellowship is to take the ring of power, cast it into the pit of Mount Doom and do away with not just evil, but the possibility of evil as well. So the ring gets thrown into the fire. Samwise Gamgee, I think he passes out, but then he wakes up and just before him is Gandalf the White. And he looks at Gandalf and he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. Are all the sad things going to come untrue? The answer of Christmas, the answer of Jesus, the answer of the Christian story is, yeah, they're all going to come untrue. I don't know what you're walking through right now. Last time I preached a similar message, I cried. So here's what I've discovered when you go through suffering, though. You often cry out for an explanation. Like, why? And more particularly, why me? Why us? Why this? Why now? I've discovered it to be true that in the absence of an explanation, that doesn't mean you've not got an answer. And the greatest answer God gives us is in the twofold points of the sermon I'm preaching right now. And answer number one is that there is a joy coming. There is a day coming where all the earthly evils, all the systematic evil by which we're oppressed, all the brokenness, sin, decay that's outside of us but works its way into us, it's gonna be done away with. It's gonna be cast into the fiery pits of Mount Doom. Jubilee is coming and judgment. Also God might do away with the evil. That's the promise. That's the offer. I was reflecting recently on what words would make it into eternity. Bit ethereal, I know. But you know what words won't make it into eternity? Hope. Why? Because when we get there, the object we placed our hope in, our hope in, is right before us. Faith. We won't need it. It'll be done away with. Why? Because the person in whom we'd put our faith, face to face, right there before us. You know what word will survive in eternity? In fact, you know what word I think will be one of the key words we keep using to talk about our experience in eternity? Joy. Let it pull you through. This is the kind of joy that eclipses earthly sufferings. If you're part of God's people, it will to yours. Number two, a present joy that surpasses earthly goods. How do we get this joy? And the answer of the prophet is through the promised one. Through the promised one. So who is he? Verse one says, the spirit of the Lord God. Now I'm gonna finish this sentence in a second, but I want you to know that I know it doesn't identify the person, just so you don't think I'm pulling a fast one on myself. But here, here, here it is. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. If you translate the word anointed, it is actually the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is very close to, in fact, it's the root word of Messiah, which is just a Jewish term for king, which in other words means what the prophet is holding forth is just this promise that one day there is a king coming. 
And that king, the book of Isaiah talks about, holds this tension between these two worlds. Now, world number one is the king who's going to come, away, come along and do away with all the evil out there, the systematic injustice, the oppression, the brokenness, the decay. And Isaiah talks about this in chapter 11, and particularly early on in the book of Isaiah. It's a strong Davidic king coming to overthrow evil. But then there's this other figure talked about in the book of Isaiah, the figure called the suffering servant. And in chapters 42 to 53, you get these little whispers of this kind of figure that's going to come along, and he's going to die. He's going to suffer. He's going to be weak. He's going to be unattractive. There's nothing in his natural human frame that's going to make humans go, you're awesome. Nothing. And the stunning, profound complexity of the book of Isaiah is that the suffering servant and the Davidic king are one and the same figure. They're one and the same figure. That in other words, the testimony of the book of Isaiah, a little bit of work here, is to say this, that there is a victorious one coming, but his victory will be a defeat. There's a strong one coming, but his strength will be his weakness. There's a freedom being won for you, people of God, but it is being won through him enslaving himself to your enemies. There's a life being secured for you, but it's going to come through the death of your king. Why? Well, because in the Christian story, evil is not just the out there reality that needs to be destroyed. It's the internal predisposition of my heart that needs to be dealt with. So if we cry in the face of evil injustice, God, come again, come back in Jesus, do away with evil, then we're actually saying if we don't deal with that in our own hearts, then perhaps you're going to have to do away with me. Which is why. Here's the question. How does God destroy evil without destroying sinful humanity? Because we as Christians can talk legitimately, as the prophets did, about the systematic injustice, God's coming judgment and the evil of the world out there. But the prophet is hinting. In fact, he's begging us to consider the possibility that that would be also to speak of our very selves. Do you see this? We have sinned. When was the last time you heard a preacher say that, just freely? I hear that as liberation. Oh, oh, cool, yeah, okay, that's really helpful, actually. That's a good explanatory narrative for how I feel about myself sometimes. We have sinned. We've done wrong. And what matters less is the nature of what we've done and the nature of to whom we've done it and before whom we've done it, the creator of the world, the holy, transcendent God. We've sinned against him. So how does God wage war on sin without waging war on us? How does he do that? I couldn't figure that out. That's a complexity. And this is the unique witness of the Bible. The unique witness of the Bible journeys us forward 400 years to the coming, 500 years, sorry, to the coming of a man just north of Jerusalem, the place where the people receiving this original prophecy would have been sitting. And this man from Nazareth, he was a carpenter. He's born in a manger to refugee parents on the run from a persecuting nation. And he walks into a synagogue, roughly 30 years old, and he picks up a scroll. And the Jews at the time, they had a rotating system for what would get read from the scrolls in the middle of the synagogue. And it just so happened that day to be Isaiah 61. So he picks it up, a nobody from nowhere, and he reads these words. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, as was customary, he'd give back the scroll to the attendant. They'd put it in the little sarcophagus kind of box in the center of the synagogue. And then he'd give commentary. And he had eight words, this little guy, on that particular day. Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. If he had a microphone, he would have dropped it. He walks out of the synagogue and Jesus' earthly ministry begins. He proves his power not by domineering other nations, but by casting out demons, healing lepers, giving sight to the blind, raising dead friends to life. But then in Luke chapter nine, five chapters later, this demonstration of the king's power in line with the Davidic king from Isaiah chapter 11, could this be the one? The commentator in Luke chapter nine says, Jesus set his sights towards Jerusalem. And for the rest of the journey of Jesus' public ministry, he trades power for servanthood. He trades conquering with sword and domination for subjecting himself. And the would-be Davidic king prophesied of old, in whom all of our hopes and dreams had been tied up, ends up doing the most unimaginable thing that a king could have done in the ancient Jewish world. Jesus is arrested by his own people, the Jews. He's trialed by those whom a king would typically trial and judge the people. And he's flogged by a foreign power and ultimately killed by crucifixion, a death which was reserved for criminals and slaves. What's going on? It's really simple. Jesus isn't just suffering the wrath of Rome as he hangs on an earthly cross. He's satisfying the wrath of God as he absorbs the penalty for sin. That's what's going on in this moment. That's part of the Christian story. And here's what Paul would say, a commentator, a Pharisee, a rabbi himself, he'd put it like this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah says it like this, we get a crown of beauty instead of ashes. We get oil of joy and Jesus gets our mourning. We get a garment of praise and Jesus gets our thorns and our, as, our, as his crown. And here's my takeaway point. If you get this, this is the joy that surpasses all earthly joys, all earthly goods. If you get this, this changes everything. It takes the good things in life and just demotes them to helpful and wonderful, but not God himself. Uh, the... The hymn writer Charles Wesley would sum it up like this. Just listen to these words. And here's my question this afternoon is, do these words describe your own experience, perhaps as I'm talking or perhaps as you've lived just your general life? He'd put it like this in one of my favorite hymns. Love divine, all love's excelling. Joy of heaven to earth come down. Fix in us thy humble dwelling, all thy faithful mercies crown. Jesus, thou art all compassion, pure unbounded love thou art. Visit us with thy salvation. Enter every trembling heart. Take away our love of sinning. Alpha and omega be. End of faith as its beginning. Set our hearts at liberty. Change from glory into glory. Till in heaven we take our place. Till we cast our crowns before thee. Lost in wonder, love and praise. See, we're orientated to seek joyous humans. But the fact that all the earthly joys which we trusted to give us something but hasn't delivered, I think is a clue to the fact that perhaps it's not working and we were made for something else. Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician and philosopher, put it like this. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. 
The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it, it's the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. Merry Christmas. What's he saying? He's saying, look at your life. There's good things you've got. And it's possible you've elevated those good things into such a place that you expect them to satisfy the deepest longing of your heart for the ultimate joy that can only be found in Jesus Christ. That's what he's hinting at. Now, how do we do this? Three examples, I'm gonna land the plane and we're gonna dance and worship a bit in response to the joy that's on offer. But one example that comes to mind and one of the ways that we expect things to bring us joy and just won't is, have you ever noticed just how the expectations we bring to Christmas Day far exceed the enjoyment we have on it? Does anyone felt that? Have you ever noticed when you're just really looking forward to holidays and you think, I'm going to get, recently I bought a recliner armchair from Anaconda. I know. And I just keep thinking, Jan- December 26, going camping, haven't done it in 10 years, bit nervous, but I'm going to get my recliner armchair out. And when I rest back in that thing, tranquility, peace, joy. But you know, hopefully I don't run out of batteries camping. You know what will probably start happening? is my mind will start to tick over. Oh, I didn't tie that up at church or I didn't inform that person. Or I'll start thinking about my year and how I'm just not there yet personally with God or with my relationships or that there's things that I need to work on. And slowly but surely this expectation for enjoyment and tranquility and peace will will just be met with me (laughs) and who I am. And there's a guy who wrote about this, Alain de Botton. He's a British philosopher. He knows French, so he sounds smart when he's using his native tongue and he sounds really romantic when he's using his second language. Awesome. And he said, we do this when we travel. We expect travel and experiences to deliver ultimate satisfaction and joy. But when we go to that country, escaping the home and the burdens of laborious life, here's what we discover. We're there and we brought ourselves with us. Or just another example, John D. Rockefeller, he was the richest guy in the 20th century. I called him a hotel tyrant this morning uh, when I was preaching at Cooley. Tycoon is the word I was looking for. So he's not a hotel dictator, tycoon. But he was famously asked the question, richest man in the world at the time, how much is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. Or Tom Brady, sorry to use the examples from America, but he just won his three Super Bowl rings and he's being interviewed on, uh, on the news at night and, and they ask him, how does it feel? And he just said, oh, this isn't what it cracked up to be. Surely there's got to be more than this. And here's the point I want to make. These experiences of trusting earthly joys to deliver us ultimate, ultimate joy and finding them wanting, it's a clue that we should not entrust those things to give us what only Jesus Christ can give us. It's the present joy. It's the gift of himself. It's what he's done on the cross to save us from our sin, reconcile us to relationship through him with the Father. And if you get this, then it'll take all the earthly joys and make you free to experience from the, for, for what they are. Oh, awesome, my dog finally obeys me. Spark of joy, praise God. But to go deeper... And to know the God who just longs, longs to be with you. And so to finish, I want you to stand if you're able. I want to ask you this question. Can you finish this sentence? Joy to the world. 
what? All of us have an answer to that. Now, the hymn writer, Isaac Watts, bless his heart, he answered it for us. We're going to get there, but... If you're a modern hymn writer, thinking on an earthly plane, what do I really want? What's going to bring me joy? What's the thing in your life right now that you said, if I just had it, everything would be okay? What's the thing at the end of this year that in your heart of hearts, if you had it, you'd feel like, like everything's finally just coming up millhouse? Fill it in. And here's what I want us to do this afternoon. I want us to intentionally and freely take that, say thank you God if you give it to me. I'll trust you if you don't. And help me submit myself to the possibility that what Isaac Watts wrote is actually the best answer the best blank filler in era. So let me say it like this, joy to the world, friends. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart, however invitational that is, let every heart prepare Him room. And you just wait for heaven and nature to sing. Let's join heaven and nature this afternoon. If you need to respond in prayer, come and kneel, join us. If you need someone to pray for you, there'll be people with lanyards on my right and left, come and receive prayer. But if you don't walk out of the pews to come and respond in a particular way, then my invitation is this. What would it look like to outdo heaven and nature right now? Because we're conscious beings and we know the future joy that will eclipse all earthly suffering and the present joy that surpasses all earthly goods. If you do not put your, find your joy in Jesus, it will not last. Find it in Jesus this afternoon. Let's pray and we'll sing. Father, thank you for your joy. Deliver it to us now as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or connect with us through our Instagram or Facebook page. For more information about Christmas at New Life, head to church.nu forward slash Christmas. We pray you have a great week and a very Merry Christmas. Be blessed.